Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you ever felt palpitations in your chest? Maybe noticed that your heart had a little bit of a jazzy beat or it skipped a few beats? Well, there's a variety of different heart rhythm problems that can occur, but one of the most common is something called atrial fibrillation. And today we are joined by Dr. David Singh from Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And we're going to be talking today about what is atrial fibrillation? What are the causes? How do we treat it? And there is some great new stuff that's coming right around the corner. What's up there? And when are we going to be able to do those sorts of treatments here in the islands as well? Thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Now, we've talked before. Atrial fibrillation is a lot of what you see every day. You're an electrophysiology specialist. That's a cardiologist who's done advanced training to deal with heart rhythm abnormalities. What is, and, and we'll, a lot of people, there's a sort of a nickname, AFib. What is AFib and why do people get it? Yeah, so uh, AFib is uh, the most common heart rhythm disorder in adults. You know, in the U.S., about 3 million people are thought to have it, and that uh, prevalence is probably going to rise. You know, it's largely a disease of aging. There are lots of risk factors for it, um, some of which can be changed and some of which can't, like getting older. Um, so as we get older, the heart uh, becomes a little stiffer. And it's important to know that um, AFib is a primarily an electrical disorder, but it's also associated with changes in the structure of the heart, and in particular, the two top chambers called the atria. And essentially what happens is uh, rather than an organized electrical sequence that results in the heart beating, uh, AFib is basically like chaos in the atria. They're just wandering electrical signals, causing the top chambers to beat four to 500 times per minute. When that happens, they're not actually contracting very well. They're just sort of quivering. And that's what we know as AFib. There's this analogy that ever since I heard it sort of stuck in my head, and it's very visual. It's a bag of worms. Yes, this is the, the worm analogy. The worm analogy. I remember being in medical school, they're like, a bag of worms. And at first I was like, why would I put worms in a bag? And if I did, why would I watch them? But when you think about that sort of, that visual image, that there's different areas that are like doing little contractions, it's not organized, it's not a regular squeezing beat. That's why it can cause some problems because it's this disorganized electrical storm almost in the top part of the heart. Now, can some people have it and have a normal heart structure or could is the reason they have it because those upper chambers, those atria we call it, have gotten dilated? Right. So the the short answer is that the AFib, although it's an electrical disorder, is always going to be associated with some changes functionally in the structure of the heart. A totally normal heart, structurally speaking, shouldn't be able to sustain AFib. So you need the electrical disorganization, but you also need changes down to the cellular level in the matrix of the atria that allows AFib to sustain. And that's the combination of those two factors is what makes it possible for a human heart to, to go into AFib and then eventually stay in AFib. So it's not, you know, some people say I drink too much caffeine, my heart flutters. That's probably not AFib. That's a different situation. Probably not. And it's important to understand that AFib exists along a continuum, uh, and it's a progressive disease. We don't really have a cure for it. And when it starts off, 
frequently it'll start off in a paroxysmal state, meaning patients may have one episode and it might go away, you know, after a few minutes or a day or so, and it may not come back for months or even sometimes years. But eventually it will come back. And as the disease becomes more progressive, the episodes become longer, the duration of the uh, episodes, you know, can become more severe. And what will happen eventually if it's left untreated is many people will just end up in AFib permanently. And the other end of the spectrum is permanent AFib. So the symptoms, if I were just sitting here and I had this structural problem and my heart had this tendency or allowed me to go into AFib, how would I know it? Yeah, the really fascinating thing about AFib is that some people have completely disabling symptoms, which I'll talk about in a second, but then some people are totally asymptomatic. So we'll frequently get referrals for a patient who maybe was going in for a colonoscopy or something, and they were found to be an AFib, and they had no idea. So why some people get symptoms and others don't, we don't really know. But common symptoms include things like shortness of breath. People may feel palpitations. One of the most common things that we hear is people just feel really fatigued because it's like their heart's running a marathon even though they're not running a marathon. Um, Those are really common. Some people get chest pain. Eventually, AFib can lead to heart failure, which means the ventricles, the bottom chambers become weak, and then you have all those symptoms as well, which are weakness, shortness of breath, difficulty sleeping, coughing, that kind of stuff. So really, in the beginning, mild symptoms, but pay attention. Because if you're someone who has fibrillation, as this continues, if it does and progresses, you're going to get some wake-up symptoms, and you're going to have to do something about it. Yeah, if we, we do believe that if AFib is left unchecked and totally untreated, uh, you know, it can lead to a lot of devastating consequences. And probably the most devastating is a stroke. Uh, and I know many of your listeners are probably aware of the fact, you know, that AFib, because the atria are just quivering, blood isn't actually being flushed through the heart efficiently or effectively. That can lead to blood clot formation. And if a blood clot forms in the heart and it decides to leave ends up in the brain, that's a stroke. And that's really one of the most devastating consequences of atrial fibrillation. So really the big reason why we want to make sure that we identify these people who happen to be in this chronic or intermittent fibrillation state is because there is that risk. I think I've heard quotes up to 12% a year or so that you could wind up having this clot go to your brain. And when it goes to the brain, this is the kind of stroke that causes someone to have serious disability. Or death. Or death, you're right, or they don't make it. <laughs> yeah. So that's a reason to go get your heart checked <laughs> that's out. That's one reason, yeah. It's a I really good tell, reason. Sorry. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, people don't really die from AFib, uh, but they will potentially die from a stroke. And so one of the cornerstones of our management is not only treating symptoms if patients have it, not only trying to get patients to remain in a normal rhythm or a sinus rhythm uh, is the technical term, but we always want to focus on making sure we reduce their risk of stroke as much as possible. So let's talk about people who have maybe a one-time episode. They call it paroxysmal. So they have very minimal symptoms. Maybe they have one episode. It's caught when they're about to do their colonoscopy. Or I had someone a couple of weeks ago was about to go do a hand surgery. They developed AFib that morning, and they were symptomatic enough so that it was determined. When you have this episode that is a one-time event or so you think, what is the workup? that is done. How do we know if that's just a one-time episode 
Or maybe that person didn't realize it, but they've been in and out of that symptom or that type of rhythm for the last several months. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, you know, the first thing is that if someone is diagnosed with AFib, it's important for them to see their doctor and let their doctor know and probably see a cardiologist and even electrophysiologist if possible. Um, you know, a sort of standard workup would include an ultrasound of the heart to make sure the structure of the heart looks okay. Um, thyroid, checking thyroid levels because thyroid uh, hormone can affect AFib. Um, and, you know, a few other sort of standard tests. But the most important thing is just getting into the system so that it can be managed. And for some patients who have their first event, you may not need to do anything. You know, I have patients who had their first event and didn't have another event for years. Uh, but it's important to know that you have it. So if you are at risk for stroke, need to be on certain medications, need certain treatments that you get them. Now, there's a bit of, I guess, and I don't know if it still is a controversy, but there's sort of a, a comparison between what's called rate control and rhythm control. And that comparison relates to whether or not it's better to have somebody be on medication to control how fast their heart goes versus have someone be put back into a regular rhythm. There's pluses and minuses of both. What is the current thinking about that concept of rate control, how fast, or rhythm control, regular or not? Right. So, uh, when when I talk to patients about AFib, I, I use those exact terms. And it basically boils down to whether we are going to focus on primarily controlling a patient's symptoms and remain relatively indifferent to the fact that they're in AFib. Um, so in AFib, patients' heart rates can go much, much faster than what a normal heart rate should be. They could be sitting down and have a heart rate of 150, 160 beats per minute. That's dangerous. Even patients may not even know that their heart's beating too fast. But if we've discovered that, it's really, really important to make sure the heart rate is slower. And that's what we refer to as rate control. So we'll leave them in AFib, but we will use oftentimes medications to slow the heart rate to ensure that it doesn't be too fast for too long. And we have many patients who do reasonably well on that strategy. We tend to reserve that strategy for patients who are more advanced in their disease because as the atria uh, becomes more and more fibrotic, which is another word for scar, which happens because of AFib, it's harder and harder to keep them in a normal rhythm. So in those patients, we'll often opt for a rate control strategy. The rhythm control strategy essentially means that we're going to do everything we can to keep the patient out of AFib. And there are basically a couple different tools that we can use. One is medications, uh, and there are a number of different medications that we uh, tend to rely on. The problem with medications uh, is sometimes the symptoms from the medications themselves are even worse than the disease. So it really is about tailoring uh, a patient's medication plan um, for their individual uh, you know, symptoms and whatnot. The other issue uh, that we, we come up with is is one of ablation, which I know many of your listeners are, are familiar with. And this is a procedure that we do where we actually go into the heart and we target areas of the heart that are causing AFib, and we basically cauterize them or freeze them, depending on the technology you're using. And for many, many patients, this can result in, uh, if not elimination of their AFib, it certainly makes their experience of AFib much, much better. So certain people would be better candidates to do the ablation procedure. And certain people would be better candidates to just work on the rate control. So if there's a structural problem, if your heart's dilated, if there's scar tissue, if there's some reason why, no matter what procedure you did, it might not be successful, 
those folks, probably rate control. Should most people be at least considered for rhythm control if they don't have any sort of structural scarring or abnormality of their heart? I would say yes, uh, with the one caveat that a patient who's truly asymptomatic, that's a little bit of a more nuanced discussion. Um, You know, we don't say that we have a cure for AFib. And so the main reason that I offer ablation to patients is because their quality of life is being adversely affected. Uh, We don't know really yet whether ablating AFib will result in people living longer. I think many of us feel like people probably will if we are able to get to the point where ablation is a cure, but we don't know that yet. So the primary reason to do ablation is if the AFib is really dragging an individual down. Now, I will say that in some younger patients who are asymptomatic, because we do believe that the long-term consequences of AFib are uh, damaging, uh, we will consider ablation in those patients. Uh, But again, that's why it's so important to see your doctor so that they can really tailor the therapy and the right treatment plan for uh, for you. Now, you mentioned some of the medications that could be used if you were to choose a rhythm control, cause side effects, some of them worse than actually having the AFib. For those people who have no symptoms, any side effect would be a problem. But for those people who even have mild symptoms, what are some of these medication side effects? Well, they range. I mean, anybody who's ever, you know, looked uh, at the the package insert of a drug can see how incredibly uh, lengthy uh, the number of side effects include, and antiarrhythmic drugs in particular can have some nasty side effects. Um, fatigue is a big one, you know, and especially for younger patients, uh, you know, that feel reasonably well. Um, if you put them on a drug that makes them feel even more tired, you're really not doing them any favors. Uh, some of the drugs can cause like disequilibrium, so being off balance, nausea, um, various neuro- neurological symptoms. You know, one of the drugs that we use called amiodarone, which is a very popular, very effective drug, affects nearly every organ system in the body potentially. So we have to be very careful when, when we decide to use these drugs. On the other hand, for some patients, they have no symptoms on the drugs and they work very well. Um, so a lot of it is just, again, finding that right combination of treatment treatments to make a patient's life better. Well, that's the goal. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my friend and colleague, Dr. David Singh. He is an electrophysiology specialist at Queen's Heart Center, and he has been there practicing, basically taking care of a lot of patients with AFib, but also helping with all different types of electro electrical abnormalities. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit, bit more about what is the process of doing an ablation? It's a procedure. Does it work the first time? Do you have to do it more than once? And what else is coming up around the corner? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh. He is one of the Queen's Heart Physicians Practicing Electrophysiology, a particular type of cardiology that deals with heart rhythm problems. And today we're talking about a condition called atrial fibrillation. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what are the symptoms, what are the potential risk factors, who gets it, and what are the main things that we're doing for treatment right now? Now, we just started talking about ablation. This is a somewhat surgical procedure. I guess it would be a surgical procedure, but it's closed. You don't have an open heart type of procedure with that. 
And the goal is to help to find and isolate areas of the heart that might be triggering this rhythm problem and then to stop those areas from doing it. And if you can do that, then you may be able to pretty much change the potential sequelae or the progression of this condition, which is more than just about a heartbeat, but atrial fibrillation can lead to other side effects. Now, describe for me what the procedure actually entails. A lot of people have a thought about what maybe an angiogram or a cardiac catheterization might be like. This is very similar. It's very non-invasive. Yeah, I, it, the the whole idea behind sort of interventional cardiology in general, which would include uh, interventional specialties like electrophysiology, is that we can get to the heart without having to cut people open. So it's transformed our ability to treat patients without having to have them recover from open heart surgery, which can be a lengthy process. In this case, I use the veins and sometimes arteries in the body, which are basically long tubes that lead directly to the heart. And we basically access them by putting in something called a sheath, which is a large IV. And for a typical case, I might put three or four of these sheaths in various veins. And uh, I'll go up into the heart, uh, start in the upper left chamber of the heart, upper right chamber of the heart, excuse me, called the right atrium. And for AFib, I'll cross from the right to the left and go into the left atrium, which is where all of the action is uh, when it comes to AFib. We then target, target these structures called pulmonary veins. And as you mentioned, these veins are the triggers, like a key that turns on an engine. They're the triggers for AFib. And what we do is basically isolate them electrically speaking. So if even if they fire, we create a wall around them that pre- prevents any electrical impulse from getting out. And the theory is, is that once you put that wall up there, uh, even if the vein is trying to fire, the signals can't reach the rest of the heart. And that's why it seems to be very effective in patients with AFib. Now, if they have this procedure done and you have found that that is the trigger, then what else do they need to do with medications? Do they need to be on blood thinners? What kind of monitoring? Or is this the type of procedure that when it works, it actually eliminates the need for some of these other medications? Yeah, so the goal for anyone coming to us with ablation is to at least pare down the number of medications that they're taking. Now, sometimes we can't do this. You know, uh, sometimes we need the combination of medications and ablation to keep someone in a normal rhythm. That being said, uh, we frequently, I would say the majority of times, we're able to get patients off some of their medications. The decision to take someone off a blood thinner is very controversial, and this is an area of active research in our field right now because we don't really know. We, we do know that patients, even after they're ablated, they may feel a thousand times better. They may be totally convinced that they have no AFib, but from studies that uh, look at patients who've had ablations, we know that even when they think they're not having AFib, they may still be having AFib. It's great that they don't feel it, but uh, they're still at risk for stroke. So we're still sorting that out. And again, uh, you know, I do have some patients who were able to get off blood thinners, but that's a very individualized uh, situation. We have to kind of treat each patient as an individual and figure out if that's appropriate for them. So if they have the procedure and the idea is to isolate this area, do you ever have to do it again? Could there ever be another particular area of the heart that says, hey, the, those veins aren't doing it now. I'm just going to step up. I'm going to start creating this funny rhythm problem. Do you ever wind up having another area just take up the job and cause some more troubles? Yeah. So there are a lot of uh, sort of mischievous areas of the atria, the veins being number one. Uh, it, about 20 per, well, in, in the literature, it's about 20 percent. In our lab, it's probably a little less than that. But in any case, you know, a fair number of patients will have to come back for a second procedure. And there are basically two reasons why that might, might occur. 
The first is this issue of reconnection, meaning we created that wall, but some areas of that wall sort of healed themselves. And we found we find when, when we go back and look, look at the atria that the veins have reconnected, and so we have to re-isolate them. So one reason for uh, failure of the index procedure might be reconnection, and that's the, probably the most common. The second uh, thing, as you've alluded to, is that there can be non-pulmonary vein triggers, so areas like the back wall or the posterior wall of the left atrium, the superior vena cava, uh, and other areas um, can actually be triggers as well. So sometimes we'll find ourselves doing what we refer to as non-pulmonary vein triggers, and we'll take the same approach. We'll we'll cauterize or freeze them, and uh, hopefully that results in the AFib burden going down or going away. Yeah, because I would think they're like sort of stealth. They're sneaky. (laughs) While that pulmonary vein area was triggering everything, they were just sitting in the corner saying, we don't have to do anything. That guy's doing it. Then all of a sudden, after that particular area is isolated, now these other areas come up. Would there ever be a situation where someone would have like four or five different ablations, or is there a limit to how many they can have? Theoretically, there's not a limit. Um, you know, every operator is a little different. You know, I've seen patients that have come to me that have had six, seven ablations, which to me is probably a little little excessive. Um, there is a little bit of diminishing returns, you know, over time with ablations. But, yeah, theoretically, there is no limit. And, you know, occasionally we'll have a really tough situation, and it requires, you know, sometimes three, even four ablations. But usually two is sort of uh, the limit uh, in terms of what we do for AFib. Um, and most people actually do quite well with one, and and then there's a small subset that do really well with two. So what else? So we know that ablation is something that can be done. So if you choose a rhythm control versus rate control approach, and if you're a great candidate for it, and a lot of people, sounds like if they get this condition and they're relatively healthy, they are great candidates for this. What else can be done? If we think about, you know, when I think back to when I was in medical school, which is shockingly a long time ago. This wasn't even on the radar. Maze procedures were just coming out. They were talking about it. That was a different type of procedure, and it was somewhat successful. But, you know, fast forward 20 years, dare I say, and now we're looking at ablation procedures. What do you see coming down the pike? What's going to blow me away in the next five or 10 years or maybe even longer than that? So, you know, I'm ablationist, uh, and I love, you know, doing them. I, I think it's an amazing procedure, and it, for the right patient, it's perfect. But I'll tell you, the most exciting stuff in AFib right now actually comes from non-invasive uh, findings, uh, in particular the role of, of uh, diet, exercise, and obesity. So there's some very interesting data um, out of Australia where they've shown that even if you lose 10% of your body weight, that that's almost as effective as putting someone on an antiarrhythmic medication in terms of the benefit. So um, we're taking a very different approach to um, AFib in, in our center now, which is that we don't see uh, patients for procedures. We want to look at disease management. And that means doing everything that we can to reduce the likelihood of their AFib affecting them negatively. So that would include uh, weight management. If people come in with a large BMI, we will frequently refer them to weight management. Another culprit that, you know, we're learning more and more about is sleep apnea. And we know that sleep apnea is a very common reason why people get AFib. And importantly, if you treat the sleep apnea, the AFib burden can get less. So Instead of just ablating everyone, or even if we do ablate someone, we'll make sure that we take a multifactorial approach. There are things like yoga that have been shown to reduce the uh, prevalence of AFib, or not the prevalence, but the symptoms related to AFib and AFib burden. Um, you know, there are lots of different things that, that we can do, con- controlling blood pressure, controlling your diabetes. All those things are going to feed AFib. So 
in in order to really be effective in terms of um, our treatments, we have to take this multifactorial approach. Finally, I should say that uh, just last week there was a study that came out um, in uh, Heart that showed that there may be an association with eating chocolate and Yay. decreasing your risk of AFib. So finally, something we can eat that tastes good uh, that may reduce your risk of AFib. Of course, these are large registry studies. This one was done in, um, it was a Danish study. Um, and again, it's just an association, so we can't infer cause. But it did seem that people that ate chocolate between one and six times a week seemed to have a lower risk of AFib. Okay, I'm going to go start lowering my AFib risk now. <laughs> but does it have to be dark chocolate? Can it be milk chocolate? Does it have to be Danish chocolate? I mean, can I just go get a Hershey's bar and now have an excuse? Yeah. So those are the details we don't know. Interestingly, it, you know, the, the theory is that dark chocolate should be better, but apparently everyone uh, in this cohort, most people seem to be eating milk chocolate. So you know, with the jury's still out on that one, and I'm sure there'll be more uh, evidence, uh, hopefully in favor of as time goes on. But it's certainly an interesting finding. Well, and I would think that it would probably not necessarily be for the diabetics. You know, go reduce your diabetes, but eat chocolate while you're doing it. That's a whole new treatment for diabetes that I would sign up for. I'm sure a lot of people would uh, if they had diabetes as well. So we're getting to this multifaceted approach to try and address this concept of AFib, not just as an electrical issue, but as a representative symptom that could indicate other issues going on with the body. So essentially, if we can find ways to address these other medical concerns, you won't need to do any more ablations because we won't have people in AFib. <laughs> now, that's dream world. Okay. Yeah. So I would. I guess I would be happy if AFib went away. I'd probably be pretty bored because there's not going to be too much else to do. But there are other electrical problems I guess we could focus on. But yeah, I, you know, the thing is, is that if we can get – if someone can – turn the clock back on AFib or reduce their AFib just by doing a simple intervention of losing some weight, even though I love doing ablations, that's so much better for them. And as you pointed out, we'll have other downstream health effects in it, just besides their AFib. So we're really you know, doing what we can to push that concept that there are many things that an individual can do to lower the risk of AFib, but in particular, if they have it, uh, decrease uh, the likelihood that it will progress. And that's another important part, which is if we can identify that somebody does have it and they're in that either rate control or rhythm control, and regardless of which category, they're on a lot of medication, if they're not doing other lifestyle interventions that can lower their risk of having this become a progressive issue, then they're not doing their part. And if we can identify what that part is, in some cases, you know, as you mentioned, sleep apnea, that's something where, you know, we as physicians would need to actually say, hey, is there a risk factor for this individual, then send them for further testing, et cetera. So finding those what we call comorbid conditions, but then also giving them an approach or a comprehensive plan of care to help them to address these individual risks. Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer in making a patient a partner in, in their health care, which means that, you know, there are things that I can do to help them, but there are also things that they can do to help themselves. And together, that's always going to mean if we can both do our own parts, you know, you're going to have a much better chance of uh, impacting any disease, really, but in particular uh, AFib, as we're talking about today, uh, than with just, you know, one thing alone. So uh, I think it, this approach is, you know, something that I believe in really strongly. And, you know, we've gotten really great results. Well, and never underestimate it's never too late. 
you could wind up having already had your symptoms progress to the point where maybe you do need to take a lot of medication. But regardless, doing some of the exercise, the lifestyle, the dietary changes, addressing those other comorbid factors, it can never hurt. Yeah. It, 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 no one's ever going to find a study that shows that weight loss is bad for you if you're overweight, you know, so. I've been looking for that study for a long time. <laughs> it's not out there, David. It's not out there. But you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, what's changed is first we had this concept of could we do something with medication? Then it's sort of changed to could we do something with interventions? Now we've sort of taken a look at it. And it really sounds like at your practice at Queen's Heart, it's this comprehensive multifactorial approach that you're really looking at trying to reduce all the risk factors by trying to help somebody live a healthier lifestyle and hopefully not have progression of disease. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, the the model of medicine that we use and, you know, I, I, what you would consider a specialist is very much that we just focus on one little thing. But we, you know, we know and, you know, many Eastern traditions have, have figured this out that the body is interconnected. So the heart doesn't live in isolation from the lungs or the brain or any other part of the body. So uh, rather than calling this, you know, an ablation program, we have a comprehensive AFib management program where we look look at all of these different issues. All right. Well, thank you for having that and also for coming on the show today. I appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. David Singh is part of the Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And if you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. <laughs> 